0: Let's open up our Bibles to to Matthew chapter 5. We'll begin reading in verse 1. Matthew chapter 5, verse 1. When Jesus saw the crowds, he went up on the mountain. And after he sat down, his disciples came to him. But if the salt has become tasteless, how can it be made salty again? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled underfoot by men. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor does anyone light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on the lampstand, and it gives light to all who are in the house. Let your light shine before men in such a way that they may see your good works and glorify your father who is in heaven. Let's pray. Father, I come before you this morning in the name of your son, Jesus Christ. I ask that your name would be hallowed in this place that your kingdom would come that your will would be done that great fruit be born in this place in your son's name and for your glory and that you would help us here that your word might be spoken that it might be heard the spirit of the living God would work that young men and women might be changed. In Jesus' name, amen. Verse 1, when Jesus saw the crowds, he went up on the mountain, and after he sat down, his disciples came to him. There are several places in the gospel where it says Jesus saw the multitudes. He saw the multitudes and he healed them. He saw the multitudes and he fed them. And both of those things show great compassion, but here we see greater compassion, much greater compassion. Because here he's not merely seeing the multitude and giving them healing or giving them food, but he opens his mouth and speaks to them. Your greatest need and the world's greatest need is to hear the word of the living God. There is nothing greater than that. And I know that you and I know that in theory, don't we? But in practice, it's quite another thing. As a matter of fact, God is going to spend the rest of your life seeking to teach you this very thing. You are going to experience trials and tribulations and strong winds blowing against you all with one purpose to teach you that the word of God is more necessary than your breath. I know you know that. But do you live that? Was the word more important this morning than breakfast? The greatest thing God has ever given us outside of the personality of his son is his word and it must be cherished it must be seen as the greatest greatest gift when jesus saw the crowds he went up on the mountain now it's unusual that he would use this kind of language we see that matthew is writing in such a way to present a great truth to the jews you see whenever the jews heard the word mountain there was only one mountain that came into their mind it was mount sinai Where God, in a sense, came down and mediated through angels, gave the law to Moses, their whole world, their whole culture, their own private lives were all built around that mountain, that mountain. And the law that was given there determined everything. Even today, if you go into crossing through the streets of Jerusalem, even secular Jerusalem, what will you see? You will see the law that was given on that mountain. Now, Matthew is trying to redirect us to something extremely important. Now there is not one mountain, but there are two. And this last mountain actually exceeds in importance the first. It's not that the law is being mediated through angels and handed down to a man now. Now God has come down on the mountain. To speak to his people and that is why i tell you that the sermon on the mount the beatitudes is one of the most neglected texts in all the scriptures is your life built around these three chapters in the same way that the jewish culture world individual built their life around the law this is so important i cannot exaggerate the importance of Christ's teaching here now when it comes to a relationship with God we only enter into that relationship through the cross of Jesus Christ not through following any teaching but obeying the gospel of repenting and believing and it is that same cross that also provides the incentive and motivation of our life we are Christians because Christ died on Calvary. We love him because he died on Calvary. We serve him through the long years of our life because we are absolutely incarcerated by the love of God manifested on Calvary. And so it is Calvary, Calvary, Calvary. But if I want to know how to live out the life that this one who died for me has for me. If I want to know how to live in a way that's pleasing to him, then I must go to his teaching and of all teaching. He sets this on the highest plane. I want you to look at something. When Jesus saw the crowds, he went up on the mountain. And after he sat down, his disciples came to him. This will always be the case, as a matter of fact, Throughout church history, the Sermon on the Mount has not only been a sense of teaching Christian ethics, but the Sermon on the Mount has also been used to determine whether or not you're a believer. In what way? He sits down on the mountain and his disciples come to him to listen and obey. Does that describe your life? When the word of Christ is being preached, are you a disciple? You say, yes, I am. Well, then. Do you come to Him to listen and obey? Do the things that Christ teach mark your life as outstanding characteristics? Are you seeking to imitate Jesus Christ? Are you? Is that your great goal? To be like Him? To imitate Christ? Don't say, yes, that's the desire of my heart. Would your roommate see that? Would the people around you see that? That your greatest desire is to imitate Christ. Having believed unto salvation, having been justified by faith, you now seek to imitate Christ. Look at verse 2. This is not found anywhere else in Scripture. He opened his mouth. And began to teach them, saying, This language is language of royalty. It's language demonstrating that what is coming now, what is going to be said to us, is of utmost importance. God comes down on a mountain, He takes His seat as the great interpreter of His own will, and then the writer sets it up in this majestic way of saying, And He opened His. And begin to teach them and what did he teach them well we have here in verse 3 through verse 12 what is known as the beatitudes and these beatitudes in many ways are simply a reflection of the life of the man Jesus of Nazareth see unlike all other teachers he lived to perfection everything he taught But before we look at the Beatitudes, I want you to see something. Oftentimes, when we interpret scripture, we segment our interpretations. We categorize different portions of scripture and we do not see that they are all linked together. And by doing so, we misinterpret or we least miss out on a lot of truth. For example, I praise the Lord that there are verses in the Bible and there are chapters in the Bible. It makes it very easy to find your place. But those chapters and those verses and those divisions and subtitles that are sometimes placed in different translations can also wreak havoc on our interpretation. So before we look at the Beatitudes, I want you to go to verse 13. You are the salt of the earth. Now, I want you to see that. He doesn't tell the Christian to become salt. He doesn't say, try to be salt. Now look at this, very important. He's not talking about the will. He's talking about nature. You are salt. You are salt. And this is something that is extremely important in our day. What? There is a doctrine called the doctrine of regeneration. It's sometimes said being born again, and that's good biblical language. The problem is it's been so misused in the last several decades that people don't understand it. They think I've been born again means I made a decision at an evangelistic crusade that is not being born again. Being born again is a supernatural, recreative work of the spirit of God that manifests as much power as when he created the universe. To be born again means that the spirit of god has come to a radically depraved human being with a radically wicked heart and he has transformed that heart he has given them a new nature so that it can be said of them in the epistles that they are new creations if you are a christian you are a new creation you have a new nature And that nature has new affections, and those new affections will drive you to live a certain way. If you're a Christian, you are salt. You can't help but be salt. It's what you are. So he says, You are the salt of the earth. Then he goes on and he says, If the salt has become tasteless, how can it be made salty again? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled underfoot by men. Now, what is he saying? Salt has certain properties or certain characteristics. If you take those characteristics away, those properties away, you no longer have salt. If you take them away and even replace them with other good things, you still do not have salt salt now in the ancient world salt was very important in that it was used to purify it was used to preserve from rot it was used to give flavor to things and this is a wonderful parallel of the true christian the true christian his or her life is like salt It keeps the world from rotting. It purifies what it touches. And it has an influence on what it touches with regard to taste. For example, when you put salt on meat, you do not say that the salt has become meaty. You say the meat has become salty. And so we see this Christian is a powerful influence in the world by nature of who he or she is. They are a powerful influence unless. They lose or wane in the characteristics of a true Christian, of a true disciple. Now, here's the point that I want to make most of all, and I want you to see the link between verse 13 and all the verses that precede it. Usually when verse 13 is taught, especially at some young person rally, It's all about we're salt and we need to get out of the salt shaker and we need to have an impact upon the world, which means we need to do some sort of evangelistic crusade or we need to participate in a Jesus parade or we need to do something militant or we need to join some conservative political party. We need to have an impact on the world. And that's not at all what he's talking about. And I think the last several decades of evangelicalism in America has proven that none of that does anything has no impact whatsoever. Let's get back to what he's saying. A disciple has certain characteristics. When those characteristics are at the forefront, that disciple cannot but have a tremendous impact on everyone around them. But if that disciple has lost these characteristics that so impact the universe, well, he's good for nothing. Now, what are those characteristics? Well, usually when someone gets to this point, then what they do is they go throughout the scriptures and show different characteristics. Well, that's not necessary. Why? We have the characteristics right in front of us. They're called the Beatitudes. And the point I want to drive home to you is this. If you truly want to have an impact upon those in your immediate context, those who are closest to you, if you want to have truly an impact upon the world, it is not so much through your militant, confusing activity. It is through what you are. It is through your character. How can we change this world? By being poor in spirit, verse 3. By mourning over our own sin and the sin around us, verse 4. By being meek. By hungering and thirsting for righteousness. By demonstrating mercy. By being pure in heart. By functioning as peacemakers. And by living in such a way such a way by living with such godliness. That we are persecuted because all those who live a godly life. In Christ, Jesus will be persecuted. You want to have an impact, students. On your future, on your friendships, on your friends, you want to have impact in your relationships with people who at this moment do not know the Lord. You want to have impact on your teachers? You say, hold it. The teachers are supposed to have an impact upon us. Yes, they are. But if you're a Christian, you should have an impact upon them. Do you want to have an impact upon your future husband, future wife? Do you have an impact upon your children? Do you want to have an impact upon those with whom you enter into maybe business dealings? Do you want to have impact as a doctor, as a scientist, as an accountant? Do you want to have impact as a physiologist? Do you have an impact upon even the person at the counter at Walmart? This is your road. This is it. I have done my share of preaching all over the world. And without preaching, there is no advancement of the kingdom. But character. Imitation of Christ. Never forget, it's not enough to have the Puritan theology. You need to have the Puritan piety. It's not enough to just have good theology or orthodoxy. You must have praxis. And in order to have praxis or practice, You must have character. What does it mean to truly be a man in this effeminate world? To imitate Jesus. What does it truly mean to be a woman in this masculine world? To imitate Jesus. And how do we do that? He opened his mouth and he taught them saying, If I could go back the 30 some odd years of my Christianity, I would have given far more attention to what I am. Yes, what I am is, is greatly dependent upon what I know, but I would constantly have put it before me. It's not what you know or even what you say, but what you are what you are. Now, let's look at these. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. What does that mean? I used to teach young preachers that you cannot preach without the power of God. Now I teach them you cannot breathe without the power of God. Nothing. My heart only beats because he gives it life. My every breath comes from his throne. I have no intellect. I have no strength of discipline. I have no courage. I have no wisdom. I have nothing. If he turn away from me, all my sky goes dark. If he turn away from me, like all of life, I wither. I must must be with him he must be with me i cannot live independently apart from him i can do nothing is what it means you know what's going to happen he's going to spend the rest of your life teaching you this every trial every obstacle every sickness everything that comes into your life that you simply cannot fix or manage from which you cannot save yourself Every one of those things are from him. For what purpose? To teach you one thing. Poverty of spirit. That you need him. You say, I believe that. I know you do. And I know you don't. If I'm truly impoverished in spirit... Will I not cling to his word? Will I not seek to saturate my life in every word of the counsel of God? If I don't do that, then maybe I don't understand poverty of spirit. If I am impoverished in spirit, will I not live a life of prayer? Prayer. I'm amazed as I was reading through this morning, John 14, 15 and 16 talks about all the great works that we would do and the fruit and every time it's related to prayer you'll ask in my name you see that tells us if we're impoverished of spirit blessed are those who mourn for they shall be comforted now how does that fit in with the fruit of the spirit is love joy One of the chief characteristics and mark of the spirit filled life is joy. So how does that fit with blessed are those who mourn? Well, it's, it's an interchange. It's an amazing cycle. The more I know God. The more I see myself in the light of that knowledge. And the more I see myself in the light of that knowledge, the more my sin is exposed. And the greater is my mourning. And yet that mourning and that repentance is not unto death, but unto life, because with that revelation of the holiness of God also comes a greater revelation of the grace of God in the person of Christ. And so my mourning is turned to joy. And in the end of my life, when I'm an older man than I am now, hopefully this you will see in me. A greater degree of brokenness and mourning than when I first began, and at the same time, a greater degree of joy than I could have ever imagined when I first began. They both dwell together in the same person. But now my joy is not based upon my performance, but it's based upon the grace of God and the person of Christ, the finished work of Christ on my behalf. Oh, what an interchange. What an interchange true Joy, true joy. And the more that we see God, the more that we know him, the more that we will see the vileness of our own generation. And our generation is vile. The world that we live in today has cut the rope like a wild dog in the yard running unrestrained and God in his judgment has turned this country over its own lusts and apart from some unprecedented work of grace you'll see nothing but greater and greater darkness and I know you see that but you don't know how much it impacts you how much it influences you I'm astounded at times how I can listen to college students bible students seminary students and how they'll talk about Edwards and Whitfield and prayer and everything, and then with the same voice go, and are you going to go see that movie this weekend? That, that's a pile of filth. And they don't seem to see that you, you can't have both those things. You are so much more influenced by the degradation of the world, then, you know, student. And if you're not in the word and you're not in prayer and you're not seeking greater knowledge of who God is, you'll never understand how far into filth you are bathing. And every time I say that the new generation, even the new generation of pastors, all of a sudden start screaming legalism. I have students that tell me I have preachers that tell me you know just trying to put us in bondage with that law and I always ask them just what law in the Bible puts you in bondage is it the one that says you shall not take your neighbor's wife that puts you in bondage and restrains you is it the one that says don't do not lie is it the one who says love your neighbor as yourself I mean which law is so horrible it's the ones that contradict our culture and we've become children of our culture And so we scream legalism when we should be crying out, Oh, God, forgive me for my ungodliness. Really? Legalism, my dear friend, is when you are using the law to gain a righteousness. That you cannot gain through the law. Legalism is when you create rules that God has not given anyone. Legalism is when you bite and devour, but make no mistake, This one sitting on this mountain is a king. And you can sit there and say, well, yeah, his kingdom hasn't come in its fullness. I agree with that. His kingdom is not, but do not mistake, his name is Lord. And lords have laws. Heard one preacher say one time, it's amazing. Jesus is the only Lord who can't tell anybody what to do. That's not true. That's not true. Find that Lot is not the greatest example of piety. And yet his heart was afflicted by the filth of Sodom and Gomorrah. We know Christ. We know the Messiah. And yet how unafflicted are our hearts in the midst of this perverse, crooked generation. Blessed are the gentle, for they shall inherit the earth. And of course, we're not going to finish all of this. I just want to give you an idea of how important these things are and how these things lead to us having an impact. Blessed are the gentle is what it says in the New American Standard. Other translations, blessed are the meek. And so people spend their whole day looking in lexicons and looking in Bible dictionaries to figure out what does the word Meek or gentle, mean, and they usually come all around with some clever saying like, well, meek isn't weak, it's power under control, and it's all these different things. Just lay all those kind of word studies aside. That's not going to help you. What you need to do is you need to go to Psalms 37, is what you need to do. Look at Psalms 37, verse 11. But the humble will inherit the land and will delight themselves in abundant prosperity. You say, well, you've just added another word. So we've got gentle, meek, humble. But what does it mean? What does it mean to be the kind of person? What does it mean to be meek and to be meek in such a way that you have an impact on all those around you? Well, look in verse one. This person he's talking about that's blessed. He does not fret because of evildoers and he's not envious toward wrongdoers. He's not. He doesn't fret about the wickedness around him and he's not envious of the prosperity of the wicked. Why? Because he knows, verse 2, that they will wither like grass and fade like the green herb. What's a meek man like? Verse 3, he trusts in the Lord and does good. Dwells in the land and cultivates faithfulness while everyone else is running around in confusion and worry and fretting about the next election. He's not doing that. He's trusting in the Lord. He's doing good and he's cultivating faithfulness. Furthermore, verse four, he's delighting himself in the Lord and he knows that the Lord will give him the desires of his heart because he's so close to the Lord that he's now thinking God's thoughts. He's cultivated the mind of Christ. And he can do this in a prison. He can do this in a prison. He can delight himself in the Lord. Up until they sever his head from his shoulders, he can do this, and then in an even greater way in glory. So he's not bothered. Also, verse 5, he commits his way to the Lord. He trusts in the Lord, knowing that he will do it. He will do everything he's promised. He knows that even if in this world, verse six, that he's slandered and people speak and write horrible things against him. He knows that God will bring forth his righteousness as the light and judgment as the noonday. And therefore, in all this turbulence and all the problems surrounding him in the secular world, verse seven, he rests in the Lord and waits patiently for him. He does not fret because of him who prospers in the way. He does not fret because the man who carries out wicked schemes. Verse 8, how is he meek? Another way, he doesn't get mad. He doesn't get all angry about everything that's going around. He doesn't get all angry at the politicians and the parties and all these different things. He doesn't get angry. He doesn't demonstrate wrath. He does not fret because it only leads to evil doing. That's what a meek man does. For he knows, verse 9, that evildoers will be cut off, but those who wait for the Lord will what? Inherit the land. There we go again. Yet in a little while and the wicked man will be no more, and you will look carefully for his place, and he will not be there. But the humble will inherit the land and will delight themselves in abundant prosperity. That's a meek man. And God is so faithful in this. In my more than 30 years of preaching, I have seen people come against me, make videos, do everything you could imagine, write horrible stuff, and go to my wife and think, this time it's over. This time it's over. It's destroyed. Everything I love has been torn to pieces, but now I look for them, and I don't know where they are. And every servant of God can say the same thing. So many attacks, so many battles, so many hardships. And yet after you pass through them, you look again and where is their place? They're not here anymore. God is faithful. God is faithful. Blessed are the meek, the gentle, for they shall inherit the earth. And then verse six, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Do you hunger and thirst your thirst? thirsty, you're hungry for righteousness. There's a story about a football coach, and I don't use many illustrations, but this is a good one. Guy came to him, said, I want to play pro football. I want to play pro football. He said, OK, meet me at the beach. Meet me at the beach tomorrow morning in your swim trunks. So he shows up at the beach. And this big, huge football coach said, let's wade out in the water. They wade out in the water. Wait out a little further. Wait out a little further. Are you over your head now? Yes, I'm over my head. I have to swim. Good. The football coach grabbed him by the shoulders and just sunk him down into the water and held him there. Seconds go by. Seconds closing in on a minute now. The young man starts fighting with everything he's got. He thinks he's going to die. He's running out of breath. He's, he's gone. He's about to pass out. The coach lifts him up out of the water and he says, when you want to play football as much as you wanted to breathe. Then come see me. Do you hunger and thirst for righteousness? I'm not talking about having your little quiet time for 20 minutes and then checking the box and saying, I'm okay today. A lot of you want to be preachers, I tell you what, the wilderness would be good for you. How many of you have just gone out in the woods or desert or whatever and stayed there for days crying out to God and throwing rocks at the gates of heaven? we got enough smart, pretty guys who know a lot but not much experience before the throne of God. They don't know his presence. Brother Paul, what's it like to Pray. Sometimes it's being like led by still water. And sometimes it's like bending your knee three feet away from an F5 tornado. Seeking him in his word, seeking him in prayer. I must have you. I must know you. You must change me. You must fill me. You must empower me or I die. Food I hate, water I know not longer any longer need. Give me you. I must have you. I must be better. I must be different. I must be changed. Make me useful or kill me. I was called into the ministry, my preacher, who I've never met another like him, my pastor. At that time, he looked at me, he turned around, and he said, boy, boy, can you be alone? And I thought he meant if I preached the truth, no one would like me, and I'd just be alone. It's not what he meant. When all your other friends are running around in bachelor packs and going on Christian retreats and everything else, can you go out in the woods and just be alone with God? Will you be willing to be that man who spends more time with God than he does with men? so that when you are among men and you open up your mouth, you actually have a message from God. It's the same way for you young ladies to know Him, to seek His righteousness, to not be able to stand, not knowing Him more. When I was uh, in seminary, there was a a professor there by the name of T.W. Hunt. He was a wonderful man of prayer. I know for a fact that he prayed for his students like three hours a day. I mean, he was just an amazing man of prayer. To be in his presence was delightful and frightening at the same time. And one day I walked in and I, I said, Dr. Hunt, I said, you know, like I always did, Dr. Hunt, I'm so ungodly and I don't know Jesus as I ought to and I'm, I just, I'm so sick of myself and I just sat down in a chair. And he would always look at me and go like this. And one day he looked at me like that and he stood up, and he got out of his chair and he walked around his desk. And he stood beside me and he put both his hands on my shoulders like that. And he said, in the name of Jesus Christ, I pronounce you blessed. And he sat down. And I I, I was looking at him and he said, you, you don't know what I just did. And I said, no, Dr. Hunt, I don't know what you just did. He said, have you never read blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness? He said, Paul, you're coming in here. You're crying out. You're hungry and you're thirsty to be more like Jesus. You're not satisfied at all with who you are. You're blessed. Stop allowing your heart and the devil to use that as a means of condemning you. It is an indicator that you're where you ought to be. If you were content, I would worry that you were even converted. Now, it's not to be some hysterical chase and we're not to run around moping all the time because we're not where we ought to be. No, no, no. We should be marked by joy. Yet at the same time, there ought to be an enduring desire, a flame in our heart to be more, to be more like him. Everyone wants to grow in the ministry. What we need to do is grow in our imitation of Christ. We got all kinds of guys that are willing to take front stage on the platform. How many men and women do we have who are willing to hide and seek God? To be like him, to be righteous, not legalistic, not mean spirited, not with all these tiny rules he never gave any of us. That righteousness is going to be most manifested in a passionate devotion and worship of Christ and a love for people, a love for people, a love for all kinds of people, Christian people, tattooed people, pierced people, every kind of people you can imagine. True righteousness and joy and freedom and love. Quickly, blessed are the merciful. This shows right here that there's no such thing as Christian perfectionism. Why should we ever be told that we ought to be merciful? We who have received such mercy, we who have who killed the son of God have received so much mercy. How could we ever withhold mercy from anyone? Remember one time I was preaching and almost before the sermon ended, this lady just ran up the aisle and she Fell down on the steps of the platforms, weeping hysterically. And I knew what she had done. She was a very evil woman. I'll never forget this. Very evil. She had done a lot of horrible things, even to people in the church. And I walked down there. I put my hand on her and I prayed for her. And afterwards, people came to me. The Pharisees came to me. How could you do that? How could you do that? How could you even touch that woman? I said, because if there's no mercy for her, then we all go to hell. We all go to hell. Blessed are the merciful, abounding in mercy, abounding in mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart. That doesn't mean some sort of, I don't know, uh, monkish piety. The idea here is unalloyed heart. A heart, now listen, with no competing loyalties with no competing loyalties that your loyalty is to him blessed are the peacemakers for they shall be called the sons of God we are bridge builders we are we we seek to bring peace peace between God's enemies and and God Peace between the people of God when there is friction. We seek always to bring peace. We are willing to work for peace. It doesn't mean we're a pacifist. We'll work for peace. We'll fight for peace and we will be maligned and misunderstood in order to bring peace. Peace with truth. Blessed are the persecuted for the sake of righteousness. Being persecuted not for the sake of of our politics, being persecuted not for the sake of our little nitpicky rules that we have formed around ourselves that insulate us, not persecuted for being belligerent and trying to force things on people in a conversation, but persecuted for righteousness. And this word here is not just that you witnessed to somebody and they got mad at you on the street or tried to hit you. This idea here is men and women who are marked by persecution. You can look in their faces and you see. Now I'm going to end this with just an illustration and a prayer request. We have to leave is this. There are two dear girls that I love dearly in Indonesia. And one of them died the other day. After she became a Christian, her family tried to kill her. Then they thought they would put her to good use. When the mother had a coma, they locked her in a room. And she lived there for several weeks in that room, taking care of her mother, but was only allowed to eat what her mother would throw up. For Christ, persecuted for righteousness. She died a few weeks ago. Her name was Sethi. She's about this tall. Skinny as a rail, her teeth went in every direction. Her eyes just bulged out of her head. She was a beauty queen. She was a beauty queen. Persecuted for righteousness, she and another girl, who I'm not going to mention her name, went up to a village to preach and to live in that village because couldn't find a man who was brave enough to go. And now the, the last girl is there by herself serving, and since her friend died, people see it as the judgment of God, the judgment of Allah upon her. So now the townsfolk came against her the other day. I just got news, they came against her. They were gonna do horrible things to her. Here's what happened. The girl who died, her father, who was the one who persecuted her, ran out the door, stood between this missionary and the crowd with his machete and said, anyone touches this girl. I will kill them. She is now my daughter. Now, he really needs to grow, doesn't he, in his Christianity. (laughs) But it was well-intentioned. These girls were so persecuted. I asked him one time, I said, what's the difference between you and the foreign missionaries? He said, well, the foreign missionaries come, into a village and they lie to the people saying they're there to grow cattle or do something. And then pretty soon the village figures out it's all a lie. They came just to preach the gospel and they hate them and drive them out. We walk into the middle of the village and we tell them immediately, we are Christians and we are here to preach the gospel and to turn you away from a false God to a true one. Then they throw things at us, they pour urine on our heads and they kill some of us. But after we live before them, As the Beatitudes say, they begin to acknowledge that our God is true. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word, and I pray that it will have its place in the heart of your people. In Jesus' name, amen.